One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ask Andrew. Thanks for coming and listening, even in spite of the fact that that sometimes my ideas wander all over the place and can be so evidently impractical. What I want to talk about today is assessment, getting back to that topic. And thanks for giving me that um, indulgence of the conversation with Heidi White. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I want to talk today about assessment and and the question of what is a good assessment, and particularly the way I like to phrase that question is, what is an assessment that blesses, not curses? You know, I always think about the words of the Apostle James in his his epistle when he said that with the same mouth we, we bless and we curse, and these things ought not to be. This, from the same fountain, you shouldn't have sweet and bitter water. Well, assessment has the power to bless. It does, truly. But it also has the power to curse. And basically, basically the idea here is that an assessment that blesses is an assessment that leads the child home. And an assessment that curses is an assessment that distracts the child from home. By home, I mean truth. I mean beauty. I mean gaining the virtues needed to live this life effectively. By cursing, I mean either um, distracting like a, a siren, distracting with a temptation, or distracting like a like a uh, um, cyclops, distracting not with a temptation but with a fear. Um, we are constantly causing our children to to be afraid of things that that keep them from going home, and we are constantly. Causing them, allowing them to be distracted by seductions, if you like, by beautiful, beautiful songs that sing about how great they're going to be. Flattery is is one of the words for that. Well, a good assessment will bless them. It will enable them to get home. It will teach them. It will teach them how to get home effectively. It will tell them when they're being distracted. Another thing that a good assessment does is it testifies. It bears witness. It testifies to the truth of how they're doing. And flattery has no place in the Christian life, that's for sure, and has no place in a good moral life. Flattery in in the Psalms is the people who flatter are described as having throats, get this, the throat of a flatterer is an open sepulcher, an open tomb. Your throat is like a tomb that's been ripped open and they can they can see inside, I guess. It's a rather graphic I'm tempted to say disgusting image. We want to testify to the truth and we want to bless. We must not flatter and we must not intimidate. And so a good assessment will 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 bless in, in that sense. Okay. Now, in the previous session, prior to when I got to talk to Heidi, um, I talked about how a good assessment will will be participating in or aligned with a harmony between curriculum, pedagogy, and assessment. And I got a little bit into some background, which you can listen to if you want on that. Maybe in the future I'll talk more about it, the distinction between 
between um, how how modern curriculum doesn't align with pedagogy and by which I mean how we teach and then how we teach doesn't align with how we assess. And that's a way to curse a child, to confuse a child without them knowing why. They just feel the discord between things and they're distracted by it. But instead we can, now we can be, let me say again, we can bless, but let me be more specific. A good assessment blesses and sustains learning, right? It blesses and sustains learning. It blesses and sustains the child's ability to perceive. But because you are sensible people, you've been asking for examples. And since this is Ask Andrew, I should respond to the request for examples. Examples are, you remember, types. That's a kind of type. And I've been contending all along that, in, that, a, that, an incar- that a word is only understood by humans when it's incarnated. And I've been talking at a pretty abstract level through this discussion of assessment. And you're saying, hold on, can you, can you be consistent with yourself? And can you give us incarnations of this word that you're talking? In other words, I'm talking high lofty principles. Can I show how it works in day-to-day practice? Can I give you incarnations of this word? Types. And so today what I want to do is precisely that. I want to give you some types of good assessment. I hope this this will work this way. Now, because I'm me, I'm going to do that by causing you heartache and grief first, and then I will go right to it. Because I want you to see something even bigger from the picture of, of the three columns we've been talking about which I started out by saying are basically ideas, skills, and facts at the most rudimentary level, right? If you're teaching an idea, then you need to do it in a way that is pedagogically rooted or oriented toward ideas. They need to be able to learn it the way they learn ideas. And then you need to assess the way you can actually assess whether a child has learned an idea. Same with skills, okay, and facts. But if you've got paper in front of you, you might find this interesting. I've been reflecting on in my own mind on how those three things of ideas, skills, and facts, let's just say there's a lot more to it than just that. And I've been trying to create a tree or a hierarchy that works, and I want you to consider this. At the very base of the ideas column, we could put the, the idea of a concept, a concept, which is an idea, the way I'm using it is that's an idea as I hold it in my mind. I have a concept in my mind. That's not exactly the same thing as an idea, but for now, let's let it be a concept. Under skills, the most rudimentary element of a skill is an action, a specific act or action that I, that I do. And then at the very bottom of the, of the fact column is the fact. I'm, I'm suggesting that that's way at the bottom of this this column, the, the very base of the column. I say column because we can build up on it. Now watch this. If I put a bunch of facts together, what do I have? Well, one word for it is a category. I now have facts being put together in categories. If I put a bunch of actions together, what do I have? Well, I would suggest that I have a skill. Or... Mm, You can argue with me about the order here. I'm going to say skill. If I put a bunch of concepts together, what do I get? Well, for lack of a better way to put this, what I get is an an understanding of reality. I I get understanding. Okay, so that's the second level, the second layer of each column. 
But what if I put a bunch of categories together in my mind? Now what do I have? Well, I'm going to suggest that what I now have is an organized memory. Okay, that's, that's what's in my mind now. And if I put a bunch of skills together, what do I have? Well, I would propose to you that I have habits. If I put a bunch of understanding together, now what I have is not just concepts in my mind, but I'm going to propose to you ideas, ideas independent, that exist independently of my mind, but I can access them now because of the concepts. If this is very confusing and philosophical sounding, feel free to set it aside, but I think you'll like, like this next level. If I put my memories together, organized memory, what do I have? Fields of knowledge. Those fields of knowledge are what we call sciences in the tradition. If I put my habits and skills together in categories like I did with my knowledge, if I put, if I put these habits together in categories, what do I have? I have arts in the sense of the classical tradition. This is where arts and sciences come in. And if I put my ideas together, and remember, these are ideas now about reality, ideas that are expressions of truth. If I put those together into a sort of structure of thought, what do I have? I would propose to you that what I have now is prudence. And so my three categories, my three columns have now become prudence, arts, and sciences. But get this, there's another level. If I take all my sciences or all my domains of knowledge, and remember, I'm not talking here about just natural science. You can remember from earlier Ask Andrews that science has a much deeper meaning than that in the tradition. Oh, there's the word. If I take all my knowledge and put it together, my organized knowledge that has been built up not by me, but by many people over time, what do I have? I have what's called a tradition. A tradition literally is something handed on. It comes from the Latin word tradition. Actually, tradio, which means to hand on. Tradere, to, tradere, to, to hand on. Tradition is that which is handed on. And that's the root. That's, that's really the key to, to a good knowledge base is receiving a tradition. But if I just receive the tradition by itself, I can become pretty obnoxious. That's what the Pharisees had. That's what the older brother had. What do I have that transcends art but makes art meaningful? I would propose to you virtue. And so now we have tradition and virtue. Actions at their top of the peak are virtues. And facts at the top of the columns, tradition. What about concepts? If I pile that up to the very top, what do I have? I would propose to you wisdom. And now we've gone from concepts, actions, and facts all the way up to wisdom, virtue, and tradition. And that's what we want to pass on to our children and cultivate in them is wisdom, virtue, and tradition. And that's why I think it's so very important that we assess in a manner that sustains not just concepts, actions, and facts, but actually sustains wisdom, virtue, and the, and the receipt of the tradition. Now, in light of that, I talked last session about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they relate to to each of the columns, and you can do what you like with all of that. But right now, I promised you that I would give you some examples, and so I'm going to try. Let's suppose, for example, that I'm teaching a child how to write an, um, how to form a letter, 
he's four years old or five years old, and I'm trying to teach him how to form a letter. Okay, now there's a basic skill, right? So what we can do is in the column under skills, we can put form a letter. Or even for the goal of the lesson, form the letter B. We'll go with a hard one. Okay. Well, how do I relate that to the three columns? What are the, what's the fact that he has to learn, the particularity that he has to learn? Well, he has to learn that there's a line down and there's two circles going from top to bottom that make up a B, capital B. That's the fact. And what I need to do is show him that fact. Okay, the skill then, the action, is to make a line down and two semicircles. Now, note, please, that that's not an independent action. That's an action based on already having learned other actions. If I'm going to coach him to make a B, it is absolutely essential that I've already coached him how to hold a pencil, how to sit when he's writing, those sorts of things. So the action, what I'm going to teach him this session, what I'm going to show him and model for him and ask him to imitate this session is predicated on him having learned other things earlier. So before I present, remember in the mimetic lesson sequence, the first thing you do is determine readiness. And I wonder how many children are trying to make the letter B but have never been taught how to sit straight while they write or have their posture correct or hold a pencil correctly. Okay, that's what I mean by, by the skill being made up of many actions and even habits. So that's the action I'm looking for. What's the idea? Be careful here. Some of you might immediately have thought what I first thought, which is that the idea here is that B, the letter B represents the sound B. And that's, that's contained. That's, that's certainly contained somewhere in this lesson. But I'm not sure that's exactly the, the concept that I want him to get. I think the concept that I want him to get at that age is actually more rudimentary. It's that to make a B, I make a line down and two semicircles coming off of it, which of course is more, you can be more precise the way you describe that. Do you see the distinction though? That's not as abstract a, a concept as that B represents B. Although that's really important. That's what I need him to see eventually. But in this lesson, and I think it's important to say that, that when you prepare to teach a lesson, it's, it's important to only teach one thing in a given lesson. And I could teach that the letter B represents the sound B. Or I could even distinguish capital from small b. But that's a different lesson from to make a B I make a line down in two semicircles. And you have to be clear what it is you're teaching in order to assess it properly. All right, so now how am I going to assess my student's work? Well, since the lesson is very rudimentary from the adult perspective, and all I'm really looking for is whether he can make a line down in two semicircles, what I'm going to assess for is two things. One, prerequisites, and two, additional you know, new things, so the old and the new. Does he do everything that is already required that was taught earlier? Does he continue to do that? Does he continue to hold his pencil correctly? Does he continue to sit straight? If he does, I simply acknowledge it. Not every time because they get sick of that, but I acknowledge it enough that they know I'm noticing it. But the new thing, this is important. 
Now I'm going to model the new movements. And I'm going to make sure, I, I shall make sure that he imitates what I did to his ability. And because it's new, he's not going to do it well. I'm not going to ask him to make a perfect, exquisite, stylized B with all sorts of creativity. I'm going to ask him to make a very bad B. I'm not actually asking him to make, well, in a certain sense, you could say I'm not actually asking him to make a B at all. I'm asking him to make some movements, a downward stroke and then the two side strokes, two curve strokes. So when I do it and he sees me do it, then I watch to see, does he do it badly? Because <laughs> if he doesn't do it badly, he'll never do it well. I'm not asking for creativity or judgment. I'm asking for an imitation of the basic simple movement. If he does the basic simple movement, how do I assess that? Well, quite frankly, simply, I say, well done. You did a good job bringing it straight down. You did a good job on that top curve. The bottom curve was pretty good too. It, you did what I asked you to do. Do it again. Now, you notice that in my voice, I was kind of implying there's something more perfect. And maybe that's because he's, I'm teaching him to make a smaller loop on the top and a bigger one on the bottom. And maybe he made the exactly the same, same size. But you know what? It's his first time. He's not going to be able to do that yet. That's a level of control and judgment that's going to come with time. But you can't control something that you haven't practiced controlling. So there's always the, the big problem with assessment is assessment is a judgment. It's what it is. It's a judgment. It's a judgment about how well they did something. Well, I'm teaching him a skill. It's the first time he's ever done it. So I'm looking for the prerequisites, the old things, and I'm affirming that they're still being done correctly. And then I'm looking for the new thing, the specific new thing. And I'm, and I'm narrowing and focusing that as well as I can. And then I'm giving direct feedback on how well he did that. And if there's anything wrong, by which I simply mean not up to the imitative standard, if there's anything that he didn't do well, by my standard, right? If there's anything that's not perfectly done, now I have to make a judgment myself as to what I should say in my judgment of his work. And that judgment is based on this question. Should he have done that better this first time? Or realistically speaking, was that fine? Celebrate when they do something well. Praise children for their virtues, but never, in my opinion, you should never praise a child for their, for their gifts. They can't help those gifts. But praise them when they act virtuously, by which, in this case, I simply mean making a form that is close to the model. Obeying the discipline, okay? Tell them you did that well. You did that the way I showed you to do it. Do it again. Do it again. And then, as they've done it a few times, and it's good, eventually you can start to say, how would you compare that with the original that I made or with the original in the book? And notice what you're doing now. You're comparing their work to a standard. That's absolutely crucial. Imitation demands a, mo a model. Imitation demands a standard. And whether it be forming a bee or writing a sonnet, 
eventually you want the student to compare their work with a master's work, with the model, the ideal, if you like. Same with a poem, same with a math problem, no matter what it is you're teaching. If it's a skill, you present, you present a model, both of the thing that they're making and of the way they make it. Notice that it's only later on that I bring in the model B. See the difference there? There's the artifact or the thing made, and there's the art or the way of making. What I'm teaching my child in making the letter B is the art of making a B, not the artifact of a perfect B, but the art of making a B. So it's the art of making that I assess, not the ideal model. In time, I said, I'm going to compare their artifact with the, with the model artifact, with what you might call the perfect artifact. But at first, and for a long time, I'm just comparing the process or the art of making a bee with a model art that I present. Okay, so if it's how to make a bee, I show how to make a bee. If it's how to write a sonnet, I show them how to write a sonnet. If it's how to play a violin, how to make a how how to play a chord, I show them how to play that chord. The artifact for now is set aside. It's the art that I'm looking at. And by art here, I simply mean the way of doing it. And you can scale up from making a B to writing a sonnet, to writing a novel, to writing an essay. Okay. Okay. So, so did I get specific enough? Did I, did I come close enough to, to saying this is how you assess? Let me summarize. Let me make sure I did. Forming a letter B is an action. It comes under the skills column or as I just went earlier, comes under the virtues column. It's an action. So I'm modeling for them how to make the B. They then make the B. And I assess whether all the prerequisites were in place and whether they did the new thing correctly. Not whether they formed the artifact perfectly, but whether they did the new process correctly. And then I tell them, you did that correctly, or I tell them, you did that incorrectly. But more precisely, I say, you did that well, here's how you can do it even better. That's if I'm teaching a skill, okay? Forming the bee. Now, if I'm teaching them an idea, I'm going to teach it differently. I'll have to discuss it. I'll have to gaze on it with them. And then I'm going to assess it differently. I'll have to see whether they perceived the truth and whether they can reincarnate the truth. If I'm teaching facts or information, that's actually simpler. I have to present it to them and then determine whether they perceived it, whether they recall it. Now, because of time, I'm going to end this. Wow, this was long. Sorry. I'm going to end this, Ask Andrew. And, and encourage you to think specifically about how to assess a skill. And again, that means model, imitate, feedback. You model for them how to do something. They imitate what you do. And you tell them, this is what you did well. This is how you need to improve. This needs to be very personal. It needs to be 
immediate and it needs to be quick. And most of all, perhaps, it needs to be actionable. It can't just be about their feelings about their work. It has to be actionable. This is what you should keep doing and this is what you should do differently. And maybe even this is how you should do it differently. So take that idea of forming a B and expand that to whatever skill you're teaching and ask, how do you break the skill down and how ready are they for it? Now, in the next session, I'm going to talk specifically about how to, how to assess an idea. And probably in that session, we'll also talk about how to, how to, how to assess facts because, frankly, that's the easiest of the three facts. Um, so I'm going to end with that. And I'm going to encourage you to assess this way, no matter what the school or, or government is requiring of you, this is the way that you can cultivate virtue through your assessment because it's immediate and actionable. And I pray for you that the Lord will remember you in his kingdom. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.